is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We're looking at Mark's account of that story, the Gospel of Mark. So let me invite you once again to open uh, the Scriptures with me to the New Testament book of Mark, uh, second book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As we continue our message series, the Gospel of Mark, Waking Up to Jesus. And so far we've seen that the King has come. King Jesus has uh, arrived and he has called and is calling people to repent and believe the good news, the good news about salvation that is found in him. And today as we continue uh, this story, we see that uh, this Jesus has an authority, he has a power that is unlike any other authority. So as you find your place there in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, Uh, Let me encourage you, let me invite you to join me standing for the reading uh, of God's Word. Mark chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 21. There the scriptures read this way. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we ask that you would now lead us in understanding the truths of your word, truths about Jesus. Lord, that we might apply them to our lives as your people today, that we might live in a way that glorifies your name. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Church, we cannot understand the predicament that we are in as people without acknowledging the existence of Satan. The scriptures don't tell us a lot about Satan, the evil one, the devil. They don't tell us a lot about his beginnings. Uh, But we see throughout the scripture that the devil opposes God uh, and the ways of God. He is a powerful creature. He has great power, but he is a creature created by God, yet given free will, free will that led to his rebellion against God. And this creature is fully dependent on God for his own existence, just as the rest of us are. No doubt, he he wants his independence. Perhaps that is what he is after most of all. He wants his own independence. He doesn't want to be associated with God. He doesn't want to be dependent on a creator, but because he is a creature like you and I, he is dependent on God. And no doubt, Satan is frustrated. Frustrated because he cannot have what he wants. And in the words of one scholar, Gerald Bray, Satan takes out his frustration on anyone he can. On anyone he can. God's divine plan and 
knowledge. He likewise doesn't give us a lot of information in the scriptures about fallen angels, other fallen angels or demons. We know that there are many and they follow Satan. He is their leader. They, they do what he does. And though they know about God, James chapter 2 verse 19, they do not trust in God. They do not pursue God. They do not live for God. They oppose the ways of God. Satan and all who are his know that he is no match for God. That he is not on equal footing with God. He knows he is doomed for destruction. And so he makes it his aim. He makes it his ambition to drag us down with him. But believers... According to the scriptures, we have no reason to fear, no reason to be alarmed because Jesus, the Son of God and Savior of the world, the God that we serve, has authority over Satan. We see in the scriptures today that Jesus possesses and practices spiritual authority. He possesses and he practices spiritual authority. Authority, the kingdom that he came announcing in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, this kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And the one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the ruler over that king, kingdom. He is the king. He is the one who rules and reigns on, on high. He sits on the throne. He is the one in charge. And though Satan has great power, his power is not on par with the Lord. As the Son of God incarnate, as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ has power over Satan. He possesses and practices spiritual authority. And Mark, in his writing, in his gospel, he wants his, his listeners, he wants his readers to see that Jesus has great authority, that he has great power, that there is none like him. And he wants us to know right here that the authority of Christ is not only evident in what he does, it's also evident in what he says. For he teaches with power. Jesus teaches with power. Look back at the text, Mark 1, verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Verse 27, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching. And with authority, Jesus teaches with power. I recently watched uh, the movie Elizabethtown, set in Elizabethtown, uh, Kentucky. And as I was watching it, I was trying to discern what the main message of uh, the film was. And the plot of the movie is a bit complex, so you've really got to pay attention to what's going on. Not just the spoken words, but the actions themselves. Uh, and, and as you do, I think you begin to uncover some of the underlying uh, message that is being communicated through that film. The main character uh, in the movie uh, is named Drew. I think in the early service I said Dan. Uh, that didn't sound quite right in the moment, but I couldn't think of anything uh, better. But his name is Drew. And Drew in this film, uh, played by uh, Orlando Bloom, uh, suddenly realizes, suddenly hears uh, that his father has passed away. And before long, he realizes that the burden of, of planning his father's funeral rests on him. It's a responsibility that has been given to him. And as he begins to go about that process, he 
he realizes that he doesn't really know his father. And so the, the film suddenly encourages its viewers to invest in honest, vulnerable relationships, for those relationships provide a richness uh, to life. And after watching the movie, uh, I, I pulled up an interview online with Cameron Crowe, the film's director, and as I watched that un- interview unfold, I uh, quickly learned that uh, the film itself is a bit autobiographical. Crow, the director and writer of the story, uh, says that he felt burdened to write this particular story, to, to produce this film, uh, after realizing as an adult when his father passed away that he didn't really know his father. So suddenly, the message of this movie took on greater significance to me because the author was sharing it. And right here in the text of Scripture, Jesus is reported to be in Capernaum teaching in the synagogue. And he's using the same source as the other teachers of the law, as the scribes. He's using the Hebrew Scriptures. And yet, others notice something different about his teaching. And it's that the author is telling the story. Folks, Jesus was telling the story. This was not a story about someone else. This is a story about him. This is him. It is him. He is telling the story. And as the second member of the Trinity, alongside the Father and the Spirit, the Son is the author of the text. He is the author of the story. So when we read, church, we ought to hear Jesus speaking. We ought to hear the author of the text, hear him speak in the scriptures. Church, even now as you open the the text of the Bible, hear Jesus speaking. Listen for the voice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world. For even now we read the scriptures, all of the scriptures, through the lens of the gospel of Jesus. That doesn't mean we ignore the historical setting. That doesn't mean that we uh, ignore the cultural context. No, we want to understand the Scriptures within their historical cultural setting and context. We want to decipher the original meaning of the text, but we cannot help but do so through the lens of the Gospel of Christ because this book is ultimately a book about Him. He is the author. So when we open the text, We look for Him. We see pictures of Him. We see images of Him. We see multi-layered references to the Savior, the Son of God, the Lord over all. Brian Chappell, one pastor and theologian, says this about the Bible. He says, the Bible is a unified message of human need and divine provision. Human need and divine provision, a divine provision provision that ultimately lies in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for the sins of the world. The Son of God comes and takes on human flesh ultimately to give His life away as a sacrifice for you and for me. So when we open the text of God's Word today, tomorrow, any day, let's hear the text. Let's hear the author of the text. Let's invite the text to speak to us. Ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Let the ancient words impart. That hymn goes on to say, holy words of our faith handed down to this age came to us through sacrifice. Oh, heed the faithful words of Christ. 
Heed the faithful words of Jesus Christ. Church, hear Jesus speak, for he has a spiritual authority evidenced by his teaching, but not only by his teaching, also by his victory over Satan. Satan is real, but Jesus defeats Satan. He defeats Satan. Mark chapter 1, Jesus is in the synagogue. He's teaching in verse 23, just then. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Jesus possesses and practices spiritual authority, evidenced by his teaching, but also evidenced by his victory over Satan and all who are his. And this was not something new. In fact, this was predicted long, long ago, predicted in the Garden of Eden after the fall of Adam and Eve when the Lord appeared to the serpent. and said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the same seed of that woman is the son of David mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, who would establish his eternal kingdom. He's the same seed of Of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He is the same son of Mary in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. And he he accomplishes what he was set out to do. He crushes the head of Satan. He controls Satan. He is the one who resisted the temptation of the devil in the wilderness. He's the one who travels throughout Galilee casting out demons and he is the one who ultimately took on who absorbed the wrath of God poured out on sinners on the cross of Calvary delivering people from every nation tribe people and language from the grip of the evil one and he is the one who will come again one day and banish Satan and his to the lake of fire forever and ever revelation chapter 20 verse 12. First John chapter one or chapter three, verse eight, John writes this. He says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Hear this the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. Church, Jesus has and is and will continue to destroy the devil's work. Thus, we have nothing to fear. Do not fear the enemy. Believer, follower of Christ, do not fear the enemy. We have no reason to fear because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the living God, eternal God, who rules and reigns on high is within us. Spirit of God residing in us. And Satan wants nothing more than to lure us away from God. Nothing more to, to lure us away from God through greed, through lust, through pride, through a professor bent on destroying your faith, through a professing Christian who doesn't represent Christ well. Through an addiction that drives you deeper and deeper into pornography. Through a hunger for materialism and money and more, more, more. 
through deep and dark depression over the sudden and tragic loss of a loved one, through a culture that idolizes immorality in an attempt to eliminate the authority and standard of God. Satan wants nothing more than to lure us away from God, but the Spirit of God is with us. The Spirit of Christ is in us, guiding us, protecting us, convicting us, encouraging us to walk with Him. Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 16, verse 20, to encourage them in their faith as they recognize spiritual warfare. He writes, the God of peace, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In other words, don't be alarmed by what's going on around you believers. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Believers, do not fear, for Jesus possesses and practices spiritual authority. But Mark wants us to see that the authority of Jesus is not just in the spiritual realm, it's also in the physical realm, for Jesus possesses and practices physical authority as well. Physical authority. Let's turn back to the text and continue the story. Mark chapter 1, verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue... In other words, same day, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So Jesus went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So we're not going to spend a, a lot of time here on this section because this is a truth that we will see time and time and time again in Mark's gospel. But Mark wants us to also recognize, to see that this same Jesus possesses and practices physical authority as well. So here's the situation. Jesus is in Capernaum, a place that becomes a sort of home base for his ministry, at least in the early days. And Simon and his brother Andrew are from there. They have a home there, and Jesus goes to that home with his disciples. Simon, also known as Peter, his mother-in-law is ill, in bed with fever in that home. So they take Jesus to her, and he heals her. I don't know if you've had fever before. Chances are everyone in this room has had fever at some time or another. Or certainly been around kids with fever. You know it doesn't take much fever to knock you off your feet. You don't feel well. You don't feel like doing anything. I'm certainly no medical expert, but my experience with fever is this. It doesn't suddenly go away. Even with medication, it takes time. Unless Jesus is there and decides to do so. From sick in bed to up serving her host, Jesus performs a miracle, showing his power, his authority over physical things as well, over sickness. And as a result, the whole town gathers. They bring to Jesus all who are demon-possessed, all who are ill, and Jesus performs many other miracles as well. Jesus possesses and practices spiritual and physical authority. Third and final section we'll look at this morning, Mark chapter 1, verses 35 39. Let's look back at the text. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, 
left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So here's the point at which if you have checked out, check back in. If you've gone to sleep, wake up. Now, don't miss this because nestled in Jesus' teaching and his preaching and his performance of miracles, Mark wants us to see that he possesses that he, excuse me, possess, he practices and too many Ps. He practices and preaches the gospel. Jesus practices uh, and preaches the gospel. So here is Jesus, overrun by the crowds and waking up well before daylight in the morning to withdraw from the crowd, to withdraw from the hustle and bustle, to spend time communing with his Father. Spends time practicing the gospel. And the language that is used here by Mark implies that this was no short prayer. This was no speedy, rehearsed prayer. He spent hours praying very early before others got up, very early before the sun got up, still praying when Peter came to him. Son of God, member of the eternal Trinitarian God, is practicing what he has enjoyed from eternity past, his relationship with his Father. As a man, Jesus is practicing the gospel. After all, that's what the gospel is all about, church, is it not? A right relationship with God, a restored relationship with God, communing with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus by the presence and the power of the Spirit of of God. Jesus is practicing the gospel. He's practicing what he has come to offer us through his sacrifice. And if we're honest, we would probably all admit that verses 37 and 38 are a bit disturbing to us. Simon comes and he finds Jesus. He says, come on, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Come on. These people are fascinated by you. They want to see your power again. They love what they've seen you do. And Jesus responds, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages. I've got something more important to do. I've got a mission to accomplish. I've got to preach the gospel. John, one of the disciples who's with Jesus during this encounter, writes this in his his version of the gospel. John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, The Word became flesh. The revelation of God became flesh, took on flesh, and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Hear this. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and, and truth. You see, church, Jesus' primary task His primary mission in His first coming was not to meet physical needs. Hear me on this. 
Certainly Jesus had great compassion. He saw, he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. And he worked to address injustice and to eliminate suffering. But his primary aim was not to eliminate sickness or eradicate poverty. He came to eliminate spiritual sickness and eradicate spiritual darkness and restore us into right relationship with God forever and ever and ever. And his miracles and his teaching witness to his identity as the eternal son of God and savior of the world who calls on all to repent and believe the good news and thereby come part of his kingdom. Friends, like a like thousands and thousands of snow geese descending on a wet rice field in early winter in the delta of Arkansas, the crowds were flocking to Jesus. Like a pot of boiling water rising to the top, his popularity among the people of Capernaum and the surrounding region of Galilee was growing and suddenly Jesus left it behind. He suddenly went elsewhere. And I think the reason is this, because Jesus did not come for crowds. He came for converts. Friends, Jesus did not come for crowds. He came for converts. Are you part of the crowd or are you one of the converts? Jesus calling us, calling others to... Surrender and to turn to Him, to follow after Him, to exalt His name, to find life and purpose and identity and salvation and forgiveness of sins in in Him. And friends, this, by the way, is why our missions efforts and our giving efforts must do more than simply practice a social gospel. We are called to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's be sure that our missions and our giving, yes, is filled with grace, but also presents and represents the truth. Jesus practices and preaches the gospel. And no doubt, no doubt, his practice of fellowship with God, his communion with God, fueled his proclamation of the gospel. His practicing of the gospel preceded his his preaching ministry. And church, this, by the way, is one of the greatest challenges of any regular preaching ministry. And certainly we could add to that any regular ministry of teaching the Bible or of sharing the gospel. It's much easier to preach and to teach and to share the gospel when your relationship with God is good, right? I want you to know, church, whenever I come into this pulpit with baggage in my own life, an unconfessed sin in my own life, and a lack of prayer and spiritual preparation in my own life, then I really struggle. Whenever I come in, having spent time with the Lord, fellowshiped with the Lord, cultivated a Walk with the Lord, and this task simply becomes an overflow of that life. Then I believe God is honored and His purpose is accomplished. And you may not, you may not find yourself preaching from a 
pulpit, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are called upon to preach the gospel. Called upon to proclaim the good news of salvation by grace through faith in in Jesus Christ alone. So let me ask you this morning, how is your relationship with God? How is your relationship with God? Do you have one? Do you have a reconciled relationship with God through Jesus? Are you communing with God to adopt the language of J.I. Packer again? Do you simply know about God or do you know God? See, the scribes of verse 22, the teachers of the law, they knew about God. They didn't know the author of the text. The demon of verse 24, he knew who Jesus was, but he was not trusting Jesus for salvation. Are you trusting Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world, for salvation? Are you trusting Jesus' accomplished work on the cross on, on your behalf? The author of Hebrews stated this truth, encouraged us by this truth in this way. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following. Therefore, brothers and sisters, therefore believers, therefore followers of Jesus, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, most holy place being the innermost part of the temple or before that the tabernacle, the place where God dwelt in a special way among his people that could only be entered, could only be approached on a given day and only then by the high priest. And now the author of Hebrews and other writers in the New Testament are saying that you believers, because you are a believer, you can enter into the most holy place confidently by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is His body, Christ's body. And since we have a great priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Believer, are you entering the most holy place? Are you communing with God? Are you cultivating an ongoing relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who invites us in? The one who, who forgives us and frees us through Jesus. How is your relationship with God? And secondly, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? You see, a central aim of Mark's writing this gospel is that his readers might know who Jesus is and might know why he came. Who is Jesus to you? A miracle worker, a good teacher, a historical figure, a comforting friend, or is he the Son of God, the Messiah of Mark chapter 1, verse verse 1, who has come to earth to reconcile you and me to God for forever and ever. Friends, Jesus came that we might know and enjoy God forever. This is why he came. He came that we might know and enjoy God forever. Do you know God? Are you enjoying God? Trust in Jesus. 
But better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than, a, than dwell in the tents of the wicked. How about you? Trust in Jesus that you might know and enjoy God forever and ever. Father, I pray that you would lead us to trust you, to trust you more. Lord, to live for you, to acknowledge the truth with our mouths and our minds, and to live by the truth in our hearts and with our lives. Father, we thank you for a record of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for a record of Jesus' life, his teaching, his ministry, his miracles that witness to his identity. And Father, we thank you most of all for the provision of forgiveness and salvation because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Lord, help us to take that truth to heart once again today, afresh today, perhaps for some for the first time today. Lord, help us to live by the truths of the gospel and hear our praises now as we sing to you, as we confess sin to you, as we, as we give you thanks, as we respond as you lead us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.